0: Welcome to Episode 8 of the Pater the Water Dog Saves the Planet Peace Podcast. This is a continuation of W.H. Hudson's Birds and Man, Chapter 1, Birds at Their Best. Sometimes I wonder what it is that is so appealing to me about reading these. And as I read, just as you would any writings on nature, you just sink right into the heart of this person's observation. And it's a bit ironic that instead of looking at the birds ourselves, we still are just relying on this writing to evoke the emotion that he felt. And in the end, we need to get out there ourselves and experience all of that beauty as much as we can every day. I have a little book that I wrote. It's just a little booklet that I find is helpful in reminding me to spend time in nature and to make some other little modifications in my life to work towards peace. And it's called Tree T, no TV. The tree stands for getting out in nature. The T stands for, I think, to have a peaceful life, we do need to get a control on overconsumption and move towards moderation. And I leave that to you to decide for yourself what that might mean. In this booklet, it Quite literally means (laughs) drinking more tea. And in drinking more tea, it may lead you to drink less of other things. And the last one is no in parentheses TV, meaning just limiting screens to get to a more peaceful life. If you'd like a free copy, you can go to my website, aviscolfspec.com and just enter your email, and you'll also hear about my new book releases and audiobook releases. I'm working on finishing up recording my audiobooks for books two through five, and I'm also working on writing book six, which is called Mono Mutante, and it's a book about food and food systems. Um, with the same lovable characters, Tilly and Camus and Pedro the Water Dog and the Bike Guys. Um, There'll be nice adventure and humor. And yes, I, I hope that you'll subscribe and get the free book and be able to follow me on this writing adventure that I'm on. In this part of the chapter, there are some uncomfortable passages about savages, as he calls them, and determinations of educated and uneducated abilities in hearing birdsong or music. As we move through time and we become more self-aware, we make determinations of what is right do we hang on to the past of people that are misguided, concepts that were hateful and hurtful for history? Do we keep the Civil War statues standing in the South? Do we turn our head for Audubon with his most amazingly beautiful paintings and ignore the fact that he was a slave owner against the Reformation and objected to the abolitionist movement. He had writings that portrayed blacks as inferior to whites, not unlike a couple of passages within this W.H. Hudson eloquent writing about birds Do we include those? I think not. And while that might make someone go to special effort to find what's submitted, I think there is a far greater benefit in moving forward and putting that completely behind us. And so this reading excludes a couple of passages that make such reference to savages and certain inferiorities as it relates to someone that went to a university in Europe versus living on certain islands that he specifically mentions. Shall we read more of William H. Hudson's Birds in Man? Let's do it. A man walking by the waterside sees by chance a kingfisher fly past. Its color a wonderful blue, far surpassing in beauty and brilliancy any blue he has ever seen in sky or water or in flower or stone or any other thing. No sooner has he seen... Then he wishes to become the possessor of that rare loveliness, that shining object which he fondly imagines will be a continual delight to him and to all in his house, an ornament comparable to that splendor stone which the poor fisherman found in a fish's belly, which was his children's plaything by day and his candle by night. Forthwith, he gets his gun and shoots it, and has it stuffed and put in a glass case, But it is no longer the same thing, the image of the living sunlit bird flashing past him in his mind, and creates a kind of illusion when he looks at his feathered mummy, but the luster is not visible to others. It is because of the commonness of this delusion that stuffed kingfishers and other brilliant species are to be seen in the parlors of tens of thousands of cottages all over the land, Nor is it only those who live in cottages that make this mistake. Those who care to look for it will find that it exists in some degree in most minds. The curious delusion that the luster which we see and admire is in the case, the coil, the substance which may be grasped, and not in the spirit of life, which in within and the atmosphere and miracle-working sunlight which are without... To return to my own taste and feelings, since in the present chapter I must be allowed to write on man, myself to wit, and birds, the other chapters being occupied with the subject of birds and man, it has always, or since I can remember, been my ambition and principal delight to see and hear every bird at its best. This is here a comparative term and simply means an unusually attractive aspect of the bird or a very much better than ordinary one. This may result from a fortunate conjunction of circumstances, or may be due to the peculiar harmony between the creature and its surroundings, or in some instances, as in that given above of the Dartford Wobbler, to a rare effect of the sun. In such other cases, motions and antics, rarely seen, singularly graceful, or even grotesque, may give the best impression. After one such impression has been received, another equally excellent may follow at a later date. In that case, the second impression does not obliterate or is not superimposed upon the former one. Both remain as permanent possessions of the mind, and we may thus have several mental pictures of the same species." It is the same with all minds with regard to the objects and scenes which happen to be of special interest. The following illustration will serve to make the matter clearer to readers who are not accustomed to pay attention to their own mental processes. When any common object, such as a chair, or spade, or apple, is thought of or spoken of, an image of a picture of it instantly comes before the mind's eye not of a particular spade or apple, but of a type representing the object which exists in the mind ready for use on all occasions. With the question of the origin of this type, this spade or apple of the mind, we need not concern ourselves here. If the object thought or spoken of be an animal, a horse let's say, the image seen in the mind will in most cases be, as in the foregoing case, a type existing in the mind and not of an individual. But if a person is keenly interested in horses generally, and is a rider and has owned and loved many horses, the image of some particular one which he has known or has looked at with appreciative eyes will come to mind, and he will also be able to call up the images of dozens or of scores of horses he has known or seen in the same way. If, on the other hand, we think of a rat, we see not any individual but a type because we have no interest in or no special feeling with regard to such a creature and all the successive images we receive of it become merged in one, the type which already existed in the mind and was probably formed very early in life. With the dog for subject, the case is different dogs are more with us. We know them intimately and have perhaps regarded many individuals with affection. Hence, the image that rises in the mind is as a rule of some dog we have known. The important point to be noted is that while each and everything we see registers an impression in the brain and may be recalled several minutes or hours or even days afterwards, the only permanent impressions are of the sight's which we have viewed emotionally. We may remember that we have seen a thousand things in which at some time later period an interest has been born in the mind, when it would be greatly to our pleasure and even profit to recover their images, and we strive and ransack our brains to do so, but all in vain. They have been lost forever because we happen not to be interested in the originals, but viewed them with indifference or unemotionally. With regard to birds, I see them mentally in two ways. Each species which I have known and observed in its wild state has its type in the mind, an image which I invariably see when I think of the species, and in addition, one or two or several, in some cases as many as 50 images of the same species of bird as it appeared at some exceptionally favorable moment and was viewed with particular interest and pleasure. Of hundreds of such enduring images of our commonest species, I will here describe one before concluding with this part of the subject. The long tailed, or bottle tit, is one of the most delicately pretty of our small woodland birds, and among my treasures, in my invisible and intangible album, there were several pictures of him which I had thought unsurpassable until on a day two years ago when a new and better one was garnered. I was walking a few miles from Bath by Avon, where it is not more than 30 or 40 yards wide on a cold, windy, very bright day in February. The opposite bank was lined with bushes growing close to the water, the roots and lower trunks of many of them being submerged as the river was very full, and behind this low growth the ground rose abruptly, forming a long green hill crowned with tall beeches. I stopped to admire one of the bushes across the stream, and I wish I could now say what its species was. It was low with widespread branches close to the surface of the water, and its leafless twigs were adorned with catkins, resembling those of the black poplar as long as a man's little finger of a rich dark red or maroon color. A party of about a dozen long-tailed tits were traveling or drifting in their usual desultory way, through the line of bushes towards this point, and in due time they arrived one by one at the bush I was watching. And finding it sheltered from the wind, they elected to remain at that spot. For a space of fifteen minutes I looked on with delight, rejoicing at the rare chance which had brought that exquisite bird and plant scene before me. The long, deep red, pendant catkins— and the little pale birdlings among them in their gray and rose colored plumage, with long, graceful tails and minute, round parody heads, some quietly perched just above the water, others moving about here and there, occasionally suspending themselves back downwards from the slender terminal twigs, the whole mirrored below. The magical effect of water and sunlight gave to the scene a somewhat fairy like an almost illusory character. Such scenes live in their loveliness only for him who has seen and harvested them. They cannot be pictured forth to another by words, nor with the painter's brush, though it be charged with tintas orientales, least of all by photography, which brings all things down to one flat, monotonous, colorless shadow of things, weary to look at. From sights we pass to the consideration of sounds, and it is unfortunate that the two subjects have to be treated consecutively instead of together, since with birds they are more intimately joined than in any other order of beings, and an image of bird life at its best, they sometimes cannot be dissociated, the aerial form of the creature, its harmoniousness, delicate tints, and its grace of motion, and the voice— which, loud or low, is aerial too in harmony with the form. We know that, as with sights, so it is with sounds. Those to which we listen attentively, appreciatively, or in any way emotionally live in the mind, to be recalled and reheard at will. There is no doubt that in a large majority of persons this retentive power is far less strong with regard to sounds than sights, but we are all supposed to have it in some degree. So far I have met with but one person, a lady, who is without it. Sounds, in her case, do not register an impression in the brain so that with regard to this sense she is in the condition of civilized man, generally with regard to smells. I say of civilized man, being convinced that this power has become obsolete in us, the most common sounds, natural or artificial, The most familiar bird notes, the lowing of a cow, the voices of her nearest and dearest friends, and simplest melodies sung or played cannot be reproduced in her brain. She does not hear them. Probably there are not many persons in the same case, but in such matters it is hard to know what the real condition of another's mind may be. Our acquaintances refuse to analyze or turn themselves inside out merely to gratify a curiosity which they may think idle. In some cases, they perhaps have a kind of superstition about such things. The secret processes of their mind are their secret or business. Even worse than the reticent, the superstitious, and the simply unintelligent is the highly imaginative person who is only too ready to answer all inquiries, who catches at what you say in explanation, divines what you want, and instantly and unconsciously invents something to tell you. But we may, I think, take it for granted that the faculty of retaining sounds is as universal as that of retaining sights, although speaking generally, the impressions of sounds are less perfect and lasting than those which relate to the higher... Or intellectual sense of vision, also that this power varies greatly in different persons. Furthermore, we see in the case of musical composers, and probably of most musicians who are devoted to their art, that this faculty is capable of being trained and developed to an extraordinary degree of efficiency. The composer sitting pen in hand to write his score in his silent room, hears the voices and the various instruments, the solos, and orchestral sounds which are in his thoughts. It is true that he is a creator and listens mentally to compositions that have never been previously heard, but he cannot imagine or cannot hear mentally any note or combination of notes which he has never heard with his physical sense. In creating, he selects from the infinite variety of sounds whose images exist in his mind and rearranging them produces new effects. It is, we see, a question of training. Any person with a normal brain who is accustomed to listen appreciatively to certain sounds, natural or artificial, must store his mind with images of such sounds, and the open-air naturalist who is keenly interested in the language of birds and has listened with delight to a great variety of species should be as rich in such impressions as a musician is with regard to musical sounds. Unconsciously, he has all his life been training the faculty. With regard to the durability of the images, it may be thought by some that, speaking of birds, only those which are revived and restored, so to speak, from time to time by fresh sense impressions remain permanently distinct That would naturally be the first conclusion most persons would arrive at, considering that the sound images which exist in their minds are of the species found in their own country, which they are able to hear occasionally, even if at very long intervals in some cases. My own experience proves that it is not so that a man may cut himself off from the bird life he knows to make his home in another region of the globe thousands of miles away, and after a period exceeding a quarter of a century, during which he has become intimate with wholly different bird life, to find that the old sound images, which have never been refreshed with new sense impressions, are as distinct as they ever were, and seem indeed imperishable. I confess that when I think of it, I am astonished myself at such an experience, and to some it must seem almost incredible. It will be said, perhaps, that in the infinite variety of bird sounds heard anywhere, there must be innumerable notes which closely resemble or are similar to those of other species in other lands, and although heard in a different order, the old images of cries and calls and songs are thus indirectly refreshed and kept alive. I do not think that has been any real help to me, Thus, I think of some species which has not been thought of for years, and its language comes back at call to my mind. I listen mentally to its various notes, and there is not one in the least like the notes of any British species. These images have therefore never received refreshment. Again, where there is a resemblance, as in the trisyllabic cry of the common sandpiper and other species, I listen mentally to one. Then to the other herd so long ago, and hear both distinctly, and comparing the two, find a considerable difference, one being thinner, shriller, and less musical sound than the other. Still, again in the case of a blackbird, which has a considerable variety in its language, there is one little chirp familiar to everyone, a small round drop of sound of a musical bell-like character, Now it happens that one of the true thrushes of South America, a bird resembling our song thrush, has an almost identical bell-like chirp, and so far as that small drop of sound is concerned, the old image may be refreshed by new sense impressions. Or I might even say that the original image has been covered by the later one, as in the case of the laughter-like cries of the Dominican and the black-backed gulls. But with regard to the thrushes, excepting that small drop of sound, the language of the two species is utterly different. Each has a melody perfect of its kind. The song of the foreign bird is not fluty, nor mellow, nor placid like that of the blackbird, but has in a high degree that quality of plaintiveness and gladness commingled which we admire in some fresh and very beautiful human voices like that described in Lowell's lines, to Perdita singing, It hath caught a touch of sadness, yet it is not sad. It hath tone of clearest gladness, yet it is not glad. Again, that foreign song is composed of many notes, and is poured out in a stream as a skylark sings, and it is also singular on account of the contrast between these notes which suggests human feeling and a purely metallic bell-like sound, which coming in at intervals has the effect of a triangle in a band of wind instruments. The image of this beautiful song is as distinct in my mind as that of the blackbird which I heard every day last summer from every green place. Thank you for joining me for the Pay the Water Dog Peace Podcast. Until next time, sit with yourself in silence every day. That self with a capital S. We are all scholars of peace. Peace and love to you all. Podcast music is Dalai Lama Riding a Bike by Javier Peque Rodriguez. A link to his music on Spotify and Bandcamp are in the show notes. Support messages of peace in the planet by joining my Patreon for as little as a cup of coffee per month. At Patreon.com. Just search Ava's Kolfsbeck or Pedro the Water Dog to find me. Pedro the Water Dog Saves the Planet books one through five are available at all your favorite online bookstores or at Avaskolfspec.com Book one, One More Year, is available as an audiobook on all the audiobook sites, with the other books coming soon to audio. If you enjoyed this episode, or are at least curious about the future ones, please subscribe to this podcast wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Thank you again. Listen for the peace.